Hey, everyone. We're going to be back next week with a brand new episode of Heavyweight. But today, I wanted to share an episode of a new Gimlet show that I'm very excited about. It's called Resistance, and it tells stories from the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement. The show is hosted by Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr., who's been at Gimlet for a while now and is an incredibly talented writer and producer. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I went for a run this morning. I used to go running because I have a terrible sense of direction. I would just run a lap of Prospect Park. That's good. I, I haven't done that yet. Oh, no? I think I could probably do it. I'm just... I would say that if I could do it, you can probably do it. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't actually want Well, to. I said it for us. I wanted you to say it. I'm going to play for you an episode of Resistance that I especially enjoyed about the only black man living in a small Nebraska town. But first, I wanted to talk to Saeed about how he came to make the show. He told me that until recently, he'd fallen into a state of complete inaction around the BLM movement. He'd stopped protesting entirely, even though in college, it was something that he dedicated a lot of time to. I think a lot of people I was going to school with, including myself, were just like, if there's a type of injustice happening, like, fuck that. Like, we are we are marching in the streets. We're calling people out. It just made sense that when Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin, so many other people were killed during that time in our lives that, like, we would, we would protest and we would march and we held, like, silent protests and we held, like, uh, marching in the streets, not in, like, huge numbers, but, like, in whatever numbers we could. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, and then I left college, and all those people went their separate ways and felt like nothing that we did really, I think it did stuff for us, but in the grand scheme of things, did we ever get anything accomplished? Like, did anybody get anything accomplished? Hmm. Just, just general fatigue with watching Black people get killed, general fatigue of explaining to people why this is fucked up general fatigue of, like, new cycle, paying attention, and then turning away eventually, and then we all go back to normal, and then the same cycle happens over and over again. Yeah. When you're when you're just constantly seeing the same kind of tragic videos of Black people getting killed, and, and the videos are, like, people who you, could be people who you know, or people, or even yourself— and that's just the realities of being a black person in America is like, this is whatever you're watching in the video is not removed at all from your own experience. And I was just like, it actually doesn't make sense for me to engage with this shit. Like it, it actually makes more sense for me to just like take care of myself so my mental health doesn't suffer because like, I don't know what to really do with this. Like, what do I do with this? I mean, you 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 talk about this uh, this feeling of inertia, um, and yet out of that inertia, you've begun doing this new podcast called mm-hmm. Resistance, and and that feels like you know you're taking a pretty big action. Yeah, what it was that got me off the couch was um, seeing seeing all these like news clippings and like articles about how young people were like at the forefront of a lot of the protests that that were happening. That was what was like, 
there's something in this that I recognize. <laughs> it re- it reminded you of you? Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of me. And, and my initial thought was like, that's great, but they're probably going to get burnt out the same way I did. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe it was the continued coverage of the George Floyd protests or something, but like I was like... Damn, like, all right, if this is actually enduring, (laughs) what if these younger people could endure too, right? What if they do endure? Like, what if something really does change? And then I was like, oh, shit, there's actually, we could actually do something here. Um, Something that could, honestly, selfishly, something that could help me engage with, like, this issue of the movement for Black lives and, like, I don't even want to say, like, the issue of police brutality or the issue of police killings because, like, that's not what the show is about. But it's, like, the issue of just, like, Black people fighting back, right? Mm. Black people, like, finding ways to um, create hope when there is no hope. Um, black people finding ways to to resist and, like, do something extraordinary when the, the decks are stacked against you. And if we could tell those stories, then I feel like I could take something away from it. And hopefully if I could take something away from it, other people could take something away from it. Hmm. And maybe that's what everybody thinks when they start a podcast. You have to, yeah. You're doing it initially for a kind of an audience of of one or to, to figure something out. Mm-hmm. I feel like the people I'm talking to all have their own messages, right? Mm-hmm. They all have their own like things that I'm learning from. So many ways to to engage and the ways that I've been learning so far I think have been like surprising to me. Is there is there one particular thing you're thinking about? Yeah, I mean the <laughs> the main one is I guess the the one that we're here to talk about today, the episode. Yeah, I would have never guessed that being the only black man in a small town and staying there was like an act of resistance. Hmm. Like, it's like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, this is not safe. This is not smart. Get the hell out of there. That was the main, I didn't even put that question in the interview doc, but in the back of my head, I was just like, what is he doing there? Like, yeah. Isn't that funny? Like sometimes like the biggest questions are the ones that you don't even initially like think to ask. Yeah. It's like, how yeah. do you ask that? And it also sounds exactly. potentially insulting. You know, exactly. like what the hell are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Um, and like, but then when I, when I spoke to him, I was like, Yo, this dude is awesome. <laughs> this guy's great. So he turned you he turned you around. Yeah, he got me to see things the way that he saw them. And I think one of the things that I love about it is not only the how exceptional his a uh, uh, person he is and the story that he tells is, but also your connection to him. I mean, I really felt it. I felt your openness and your ability to connect. So in a moment we're gonna we're gonna play uh, the the episode you're talking about is the third episode. Yeah. And um, here we go. Hey, just a warning before we get started. This episode of Resistance deals with some heavy themes and has some strong language in it. We'll get started right after this short break. The town of Harvard, Nebraska, has a population of about a thousand people. They got one bank, one bar one school, and one black man. As far as the only black man and only family of color in Harvard, I'm, I'm it, man. You're looking at him right now, man. 
Wow. This is this is the house <laughs> of the one black family in Harvard, Nebraska. <laughs> His name is Jermaine Ginyard, but everybody just calls him Coach G. And he always gets the same question. How did you end up here? Like I tell my family, man, it, it, there's no way in the world a man like myself from San Diego, California is going to say, I'm going to go to Harvard, Nebraska to start my family. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think Harvard found me. I didn't really, like, go looking for it, but, you know, there's... I guess that's why we're going to get into our story. From Gimlet, I'm Saeed T. John Thomas, Jr. This is Resistance. In this episode, the only Black man in Harvard, Nebraska, puts on the first Black Lives Matter protest the town has ever seen. Jermaine landed in Nebraska in the early 2000s. And at first, he was in Hastings, Nebraska, on a football scholarship. But then he graduated and moved to Harvard, which is just a few miles away. It was cold, it was small, and it was white as hell. It was nothing like where Jermaine had grown up, San Diego, California. But he stuck it out in Harvard. He was in his early 20s, and he's very quick to tell me that at that stage of his life, he was very much a rah-rah, hot-headed football player type of guy. But then he met his wife. Her name was Rosa. In our text messages, he spells out her name in all caps like he's framing it. Rosa. He loved how calm she could be under pressure. Like when white people in town tried him, when he was ready to fight, Rosa kept it real with him. She told him, Jermaine, you know you don't have enough fists to fight the whole town. And Rosa liked how honest and caring Jermaine was, almost to a fault. He was the kind of guy who would put 67 cents worth of gas in his truck just so he could have some change left over so he could share a meal with you. One day, they were talking about their plans for the future. Jermaine asked, do you want to settle down at some point? She said, yes. Do you want to settle down with me? She said, yes. So they settled down together in Harvard. San Diego to Nebraska, it was a huge shock in itself. Mm-hmm. Coming from a metro of a million people to Harvard, where you only have a thousand people, even today, I still have to like grip it and, and take it in and really like understand what's going on. But I had to adapt, man. I really had to adapt. I think with me, the biggest thing being a very confident black man, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people didn't really know how to respond to me. Hmm. Um, I think at times Nebraska is kind of used to a particular type of way they want people of color to be. What did you think they expected? Like, what did, what did they expect from people of color? What did they expect from you? Oh, man, I really think they... they, they, they honestly, Saeed, I, I have to be honest with you. I think a lot of people in Nebraska still see Blacks as slaves, and, and mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to say that in a rude or disrespectful way, but they see us as a as a, a commodity, as something that um, definitely not as equal, mm-hmm. but as something is like um, I don't want to say say animal or cattle, but mm-hmm. I just think they don't look at us as equal. I really think they expected me just to be a humble, mm-hmm. do as you say, mm-hmm. black man, and I think that perception of what they feel a black man is, is kind of 
I didn't fit that mold, man. And so yeah. Uh, yeah. I just didn't fit it. Dreadlocks, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah, a sandy. Yeah. I just didn't fit it. And so um, it was growing on both ends, man. It was growing right. on both ends. At that point in your life, can you remember any moments like in those early days where, you know, communication broke down with somebody or there was a situation where the way you were ran up against the way they expected you to be? Oh, man, I remember coming to Harvard and walking my dog. It was nigger, get off my grass. Oh, yeah? Uh, oh, man, you have no idea, man. This is when I'm walking with my daughter, too. Nigger, get off my grass. Wow. I've had, oh, man, I've had... Listen to this. I had those ladies that, that go in the courthouse, do your taxes and stuff like that, if you're paying for your car and stuff like that. But yeah. she told me straight up, hey, listen, man, we don't want a lot of your kind out here. So if you can, try to keep this a secret out here because we don't need too many people out here like yourself moving oh. out here and kind of messing up. Like, oh, man, I've I've gotten something to subtle and straight subtle racism, smiling your face racism. Um, it's, it's, it, it was big when I first got out here, man. Wow. So, and and you stayed. And I stayed. And that's, and you see, I think today, I think today why Jermaine is respected so much is because I weathered the storm, man. Yeah. I'm also thinking about like, I feel like, you know, you coming of age in this place where people are both blatantly and subtly racist to you, and then you start having a family there, you start building a family. Like, I'm wondering, like, you start having kids, like, well, I don't know. I, I would think maybe the first thing you would think about is, all right, how am I going to get my kids the fuck out of here? You know? Yeah. Like, you how, know what? Like, why don't we just leave? You know, in all honesty, that was that was that was kind of my angle. But with my wife being here and her mom and her sister, it kind of got me to stay here. Kept stick them. You know, Saeed, um Yeah. One thing that really helped me out being here was that the fact that I coached. I coached a lot of these white kids around here. So a lot mm. of people got to see me out of context as far as like not just seeing a black man with dreads. They got right. to see kind of a little bit of my innocence. They got to see me without my my defenses with their children coaching them. And once that kind of took place, everything started to change a little bit for me. The grand uh, parents would call me nigger. Get off my grass, nigger. But their grandbabies, I'm coaching them. So they got to see me in a light light. I just told this nigger to get off my grass. And my grandbaby loved this dude, man. He liked talk about Mr. G all day. So it was one of those situations that happened, Saeed. It was a really, with love and patience, I'm probably still a nigger to him. I don't know what I, but I was able to slip through a seed of love to just get them to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me look at this from a different lens. And I think that's really what happened, man. Wow. Okay. Uh, did you ever talk to your children about all this stuff? Every day. They know about it. Oh, man, um, um, I don't need to talk about it. it, it they, they have it directly in their face. My daughter was called a nigger bitch, was written on the bathroom wall. My children have experienced it. I've had uh, one of the kids on my kids' baseball team spit in his face and call him a nigger. Huh. Um, it's come to them at a young age, man. So um, that's one thing about small towns. Like in San Diego, I didn't even know what racism really was until I got to Nebraska. And so, like, mm. um, they you don't have to really worry about that in small towns, especially at whatever age. It's gonna come to you, man. Like, how do you how do you remain black in that in that place in Harvard, Nebraska? Like, how do you like maintain your blackness? <laughs> like, I'm gonna be honest. I feel with like you. I feel like so much of my blackness is like about 
participating in shit with other black people, you know what I'm saying? Like the way I talk to other black people or the way we dap each other up or all that kind of, all these little idiosyncrasies that make up what it means to be black. And like, if I'm by myself and I'm just surrounded by a bunch of white people, I'll probably lose that. Like, how do you remain, how do you, how do you maintain your blackness? Man, Saeed, I'm going to tell you, because I'm in all white, leave it to Beaver, I got to almost like, um, it almost perpetuates my blackness, man. I almost got to, <laughs> I almost <laughs> got to be a symbol, man, for like all black men and black people. So, and so once I said, when I came from San Diego, I didn't know what racism was until I got to Nebraska. And so once that came out and I felt it and I tasted it and it hit me, it made me say, he go, oh, y'all going to really, oh, okay. Y'all going to see a black man for real. I'm going <laughs> to show you. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, there's no black people here where I could be like, for example, the way we talk, what up? You know what I'm trying to say. What up, what yeah. up? How we talking, how we do our thing. But mm-hmm. um, so I can't really do that with my with people, obviously being the only black dude here. But as far as letting people see, like, one of the reasons why I kept my dreadlocks, um, mm-hmm. everything I could do to wear my Rastafarian shirts, not in a disrespectful way, but just to show my blackness, I'm doing it, man. And, and like I said, man, people really know where I stand when it comes to you're not gonna you're not gonna bring that foolishness or disrespectful stuff my way like that. So mm-hmm. Oh man, I will. I'll tell you, Saeed, Just being around white folks every day makes me realize um, how much I have to really keep that that symbol established, man. It really is, man. So, so you don't go in the other direction. You don't like run away from it. You like embrace it even more because man, I ran to it one. even more. And I think that's right. why people could put a finger on me in Harvard because they like, oh, that dude. He he a black dude. He he a black man. But I'm able to show them blackness in a love and beautiful way instead of the way that they always perceive that we got to be on going to jail or we got to be thugging or, or selling dope. I'm able to show them like, He's very black. He loves being black. He's a black man. He's going to speak up and he loves his family. <laughs> he loves his black family, his black babies. And all y'all going to put on, be put on notice about that. And with that, I think, um, believe it or not, ironically, I get a lot more respect, man, that way. So, yeah, that's you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. You say white people, they don't want uh, watered down soul food <laughs> when they go eat ribs and bar they want they want to eat you feel me so yeah, yeah. i try not to give them a watered down version <laughs> a perception of black man man I, i'm gonna give them straight soul food man so oh man <laughs> fucking hilarious <laughs> oh man that's that's funny uh, it makes me think about there's this like clip from this movie uh that's like uh, this dude, he's dressed in like, he has like a colorful African print shirt on. He has a little hat and it's like, oh, it's like a 90s throwback joint and like, it's like a little music video and he's like, he's basically like, I'm black, y'all, and I'm black, y'all, and I'm blacker than black and I'm black, and that's, y'all. That's, that's CB4. That's CB4, yeah. the movie with Chris Rock yes, and uh, Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, that's you. That's yeah, you. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for real, that's that. Yeah, for real, for real, for real, for real. Yeah, yeah, man. Hey, that's, that's a good that's, movie. When we come back, Jermaine finally tells the town how he feels. But in a place like Harvard, will anyone listen? What's good, y'all? 
Welcome back. Jermaine Ginyard has been in Harvard, Nebraska for 14 years now, and he's put down some roots. One kid turned into two, turned into six. And houses are cheap in Harvard. Jermaine was able to become the first person in his family to own property. One house turned into two, turned into six. He even bought the old boarded-up church where all the white folks in town were baptized when they were kids. He told me they didn't like that very much. At first, it was hard for me to understand why he didn't just leave Harvard. But talking to him, I realized that for all the shit he's gone through in Harvard, it's where he fell in love. It's where he became a father, and it's where he became a man. Jermaine's refusal to leave was his way of resisting. Staying in Harvard was the biggest political statement he could have made. But a few months ago, when Jermaine heard about the police killing of George Floyd, he knew just being a symbol wouldn't be enough anymore. He had to say something. Can you tell me how you heard about, yeah, how you, how you heard about George Floyd's death? Oh, man, how I heard about it, man. It was, uh, man, I was getting so numb to us getting killed by the police, man. That was just seems like it was like once every other month, man. And once I seen that George Floyd, man, and I really only watched it once. That's all it took for me. And, oh, man, you didn't have to really hear about it. It was everywhere on the news, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I'm going to be honest, I still haven't watched that video. Um, but I know what's there, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And just knowing what's there, when I heard about it, there was like a very heavy, like I, my, the way I was feeling was just like heaviness. I like I couldn't, it felt like I just couldn't move. Like I sat on my couch for like days, just doing nothing. Saeed, in all honesty, I, I was so like you, I was so sick in my stomach and heavy that I had to, I had to wake up and get that off my chest. And that's what the protest was because being a black man, you don't you can't really talk to somebody that's not black that understands like I can't talk to my wife to be like although she's Mexican and a woman of color she has no idea what it means to be a black man and then mm-hmm. not been not having a Saheed here where I can really jib it up with him like dude you know so my way of just being able to express that without having people here that understand what a black man is is to be able to have that protest and speak out and let it be known you know so Word. it's therapy for me Tell me about the moment you decided to organize the protest. Oh, yes. That night, that night, y'all, I don't know necessarily. I think it was on a Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. But the night before, I was just thinking, what needs to be done, man? I, I, I was figuring out, I was thinking, pacing back and forth. And my wife said, you should do a protest. And I didn't even really take heed to what she was saying, man. I didn't even hear it. Like, really wasn't hearing her. And then I went to bed and woke up the next morning and I said, I should do a protest. And she was like, I kind of, I kind of told you that last night. (laughs) And so it went down, it went down just like that, man. That night when your wife was talking to you, up until that point, had you seen that there were protests happening all over the world? Wasn't even on that, man. I wasn't even paying attention, man. I didn't even know how to even form a protest. I didn't know how to organize one. I didn't even know what that necessarily meant. The only protest I ever really knew about was Martin Luther King watching them and, and doing the marches that they did. I've never experienced, never talked, never even knew. Um, as far as in Harvard, even Nebraska in general, I think outside of Omaha, um, mm-hmm. very foreign, man. You don't do things like that. And so um, I just felt like this needed to be addressed in our town, man. And I didn't know what to expect, Saeed. I, I just... I was hurt, man. And it was a way for me to just therapy, man. I was hurt. 
I woke up at nine o'clock. I texted some individuals. I texted four individuals, former students, my former athletes, and they went out there and put the put the grassroots together, man. And of those four people that you reached out to, who did you call first? David Rizzola. He is an 18-year-old, just graduated senior. As much as I want to say, I'm old enough to be his father, but I try not to take that away from his dad and that type. So I almost look at him like a big brother, man. And I remember texting him and I said, David, I want to put a protest together. I want to get behind George Floyd's death. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I said, you are going to be, you got to call and text people because your platform on social media, that's kind of what we use, his platform. And it just took off, man. How quickly did it come together? I will, and listen, I called him at 11, and by 7 p.m., I would say eight hours, man. It's funny, though, because it started at 7. We got there about 6.40, and it was only me and David on the steps. <laughs> he was like, hey, coach, if it's just me and you, we got to roll with it. I said, David, if it's just me and you, we got to roll with it. So about 6.40 roll, 6.45, about three people trinkle in, 6.50, about five more. Let's roll with it, David. And then about by 6.58, just... Just everybody started rolling in. So it was kind of neat, man, the way it all happened. And then it's funny is it would have been more, but you had some people in the back with their phones taking pictures just to be like, uh, what's going to happen or something happened or, you know, didn't really want to be involved, but just wanted to, you know, you know how that is. Right. See how everything's going just for the just in case. Right, right. Harvard's not ever had a protest ever. You know, we coming from a town where the KKK was kind of um, flourished, man. You know, we have a history of KKK in our town. So I think with that history, you know, you're still living with them perceptions and biases. And so I think a lot of people were just, uh, they're not used to having a protest like that. They never had a black dude speak up and speak out like this before. And so it, it, it was all new to them as well, man. It was all new to them, so... I don't think they I don't think they knew what to expect either to be honest with you. So you you spoke, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, what did you, what did you say? Um the well, first thing I said is there's to be no violence here, man. And so if you came with this mindset of thinking you're going to plus it ain't nothing here to to, to riot, what you going to get? <laughs> what, what you going to take? Just ain't nothing in a bag of chips, <laughs> some juice from the store. Right, right. So as far as you rioting, you just <laughs> I would you tear your own stuff up for, but nothing ain't nothing here to take. But uh, uh, that's one of the first things I said. And then I went into uh, why we were here today. We may be small town, Nebraska. We may be a small town. You go, there's no police brutality here. And you're right. We don't have to deal with that. But what can we do in our part to bring justice and stuff to, to America? Because we're all Americans. Went on to... Um, the love I have for the town, but then I was able for me to address the subtle and injustices and the blatant racism that goes on. So when I stay here today, I tell you I love you because I mean that with my soul. And I'll fight for all of y'all. And all of y'all know that. If you gay, if you a female, if you Latino, if you black, this is injustice for you. If you couldn't speak out because you couldn't be beautiful, this is for you. Don't let nobody take that from y'all. Don't let anybody take that from y'all. So don't look at it like, oh, poor whatever. Stand strong and be strong for heart. Because this is our community.
so pe- all these people show up. Was there anybody who showed up that was surprising to you? That you were like, oh, I did not expect to see you here. <laughs> all right, Saeed, I don't know how you're going to do this or how you're going to edit this, but uh, uh, how can I say this? I uh, was working at Harvard Public Schools. And once again, there was a story behind my daughter being called a nigger bitch on the wall. And so to make a long story very short, I confronted my superintendent. Things didn't really get done. Confronted him again as a father. Things still really didn't get done. The administration there just just really kind of dropped the ball. It really hurt. So with that being said, those administrators showed up to the rally. I was like, wow, man, that's kind of ironic. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I thought that was very ironic for them to show up to a equality Black Lives Matter event when you didn't take care of my daughter who's black when she was in your school being called a nigger or bitch or whatever it was. Did you talk to him? Matter of fact, one of the this is now here we go. How ironic. One of the uh, rules David gave when we were to get up from laying down for nine minutes like George Floyd was, he said to. Grab a partner. Make sure your partner's laying down. I want you to go help your partner up. You know, like help your, help a friend up. Nobody helped the administrators up. They were like, nah, we don't want to go help them. <laughs> well, guess who, well, guess who had to go help them to show them that, man, listen, Jermaine did, Coach G. So, yeah, those administrators who nobody went to go help up, man, I went to go actually help them up. So that was a little weird. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, man, it, it... It feels like you have to do that all the time in one way or another. It feels like you're always helping people up who aren't helping you. Yes, I That's, yeah. And that's where being around Black people, such as yourself and just my people, kind of come in. It's hard not being able to talk to people that I come from. I've adapted, man. I've learned to just mature and speak and communicate in ways that um, I'm able to reach people and touch their souls, man, and plant seeds. But it is tough, man, at times because I always have to maintain a symbol of blackness. Every day I walk out of the house, especially in this town of a thousand people, predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, man, you just want to be, you, you just want to just say, what up, Saheed? You good, man? What's good, dog? What you about to get? Let's go ball. Let's yeah, go shoot yeah, some hoop. Yeah. You just want to, yeah. you want to be able to kind of just, and, 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 and unfortunately for me, I have to be this 95 to 98% of the time, all the time. And anytime I let my defenses down, it has to be in my house within my family. So that could be a bit um, tolesome at times. Do you think people listened? Saeed, they trying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. They try. Some are trying. Like, that's like the the best you can offer is like, they try. (laughs) They trying, man. Listen, I'll tell you this, man. It's a little bit more positivity my way. Like, I walk my dog in a very weird way. Some people who never spoke to me or said hi or what's up are now being able to, like, kind of put down their borders and, the Harvard Community Club has invited me to be a member, which I never was ever invited <laughs> in my own community to be a member of a club. So I, I, I got that invitation. Wow. Um, the firehouse asked me if I wanted to be a volunteer firefighter. You know, wow. things that most most men or people in the community would probably get, get when they move in or be asked. I was finally asked these things. You know, it, wow. took me, it took me to speak up and have this protest for people to be able to look at me and go, oh, man, let's try to get him involved. 
with the community now. And so um, right. in- instead of being on the outside looking in, they kind of welcoming me on the inside now. And so um, um, did it help? As much as I, you know, um, yeah, Sahib, even if it's like a very inch step, they're not going to take a full step, you know that. But yeah, yeah. if they could take a little inch drag, and if that's what I had to do all that for, for them to be able to t- just take a half a miller inch step, as much as I don't want to say I can't stand that, was it positive or progress? Yes, Sahib, it, 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 it helped a little. It did. Yo, man, thank you so much. This conversation was so good, bro. Um, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like you, I, I feel like you're going, like a part of me is like worried for you being the only black man there and worried <laughs> for your family. But like also this whole conversation gave me like, I feel like you, you just show like you got it essentially. Like you, you got it. Like you holding it down. As long so, as, and I tell people in Nebraska, as long as you know where I'm at and you know I'm in Harvard, I'm the only black dude here. I'll, I'm kind of good. As long as if right. something happened to me, you're going to be like, hold up, hold up. Where's Jermaine? <laughs> right. We know where Jermaine at. So that ain't, uh uh-uh, uh, nope, nope, nope. He's, right. Like, it should be missing, missing like that. Yeah. Everyone would know. <laughs> Everybody go know. Hold up, where's Jermaine? <laughs> it ain't about, it ain't a hundred of them, it's one. Some ain't right, right. where he at? <laughs> when I'm weary and so worn out Thanks for listening. Resistance is produced by Bethel Hobte, Wallace Mack, Ann Randall, and Kimmy Regler. Our production assistant is Sandra Riano. Our supervising producer is Sarah McVie. We're edited by Lynn Levy, Lydia Paul Green, and Brendan Klinkenberg. Mixing and scoring by Bobby Lord and Katherine Anderson. Theme by Bobby Lord. Original score by Drea, the Vibe Dealer. Make sure you smile when you say her name. Fact-checking is by Michelle Harris. And our show art is by Darian Burks of the Stuyvesants. Good looks, homie. Credits music is Cut Me by Moses Sumney. Oh, and again, did you know that you can vote before November 3rd in most states? If you want to find out how, go to playyourpart.ballotready.org. Please do that. And if you like this episode, tell a friend about it. You can find me on Twitter at SaeedTTJ. That's S-A-I-D-U. TTJ. And you can follow us on IG at Resistance Show. Resistance is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. All right. See y'all not next week, but the week after, which means our next episode will be on Wednesday, November 11th. We just want to make sure we bring y'all our very best. All right, bet. See y'all soon. What gets me, gets me, gets me, get me, get me, get me.
Thank you.